Well, thank you, Bucky. Uh, and thank you, everyone else who's joined us here today at the Forget Me Not Club. Rob for the amazing worship and Dave, and also my dad and Claire, who you can't see, who are, who are helping out behind the scenes. Um, we are going to be continuing today our study through 1 John. I think we've been in 1 John for about 21, 22 weeks now. So it's some considerable study, uh, but we have been getting so much from this. And uh, today's going to be no different. We're starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. So if you want to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, and I'll read and then we'll begin. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Thanks be to God for his word today. Amen. And Lord, I pray that as I come to preach from it, that I'm able to preach it without putting my own lenses on. Uh, without coloring your word according to my own preferences, which are inf infected and inflected with sin. But Lord, that I'd be able to preach your word clearly, and as it is, Lord God, that it might benefit those who hear it today. We pray this in your mighty name, through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, as a young boy, my heroes were nearly all footballers. And I have to say, I caught the bug Sorry for the, uh, the usage of that particular term. <laughs> I caught the bug at a very young age. It was actually my dad uh, that took me up to Molyneux to watch uh, Steve Bull rescue a dramatic late point for Wolves against Watford. And it was somewhere uh, in 1993, there or thereabouts. And uh, I remember at the time that the football stadium itself, there were actually only two sides to it, I think. There was the, the stand we were sat in. Uh, and then there was a stand that had just been built over to the right, and the rest of the ground was pretty much derelict. Um, but nevertheless, I caught the bug, and I fell rapidly and deeply in love with Wolverhampton Wanderers for my sins. <laughs> Every non-uniform day at school was an opportunity for me to wear my newest football shirt. And, and I have to confess, that didn't just include the Wolves shirt. Uh, as a boy, I was like every other boy. I collected football shirts for a living. In fact, my first football short, uh, shirt, uh, it shames me and pains me to say, wasn't a Wolf shirt. It was actually a Man United away shirt. Yeah, the, uh, Bucky's cheering. It was pretty heinous to look at, actually. It was well, that, that kind of light blue diamond check shirt with sharp view cam, the dent, it was like the Brian McClare shirt, you know, that he was the hero back in the day. But every, uh, let's move on swiftly from that uh, admission, every non-uniform day was an opportunity to, to wear my newest shirt. Uh, evenings after school were just so special. They were spent always, I don't know about you, if you were into football as a kid, my evenings after school were spent hair in round the garden, 
you know, usually in, in my England shirt, self-commentating on every move I was making in the garden. Um, you know, it was just a special time. Uh, my parents' poor windows getting pelted with footballs um, by the minute. Now, if you don't understand football obsession, then I'll try my best to explain it to you because I'm well aware that not everybody who's tuning into the feed will share my passion, and I know my wife doesn't. Wrapped up in every football fan's obsession, ultimately, is the hope of glory. It's the hope of glory. It's the dream of domination, of victory, of vanquishing the foe, whichever that team may be. You know, no football fan dreams of mediocrity, do they? No football fan dreams of mid-table mediocrity. They want to win. They want to see their team succeed. And they get some kind of pleasure out of that. They're attached to their team. And the best kind of victory for a football fan is against that type of victory that's kind of, it's against all odds. You know, you pull victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, other football fans will, will be able to, um, I think, identify with me in that most often, being a Wolves fan, it's the opposite way around. You know, we managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, but you want it the other way around. That's the sweetest type of victory. And the best type of victory is always against, you know, the ultimate foe. For us, it was always, growing up, it was the baggies, you know, but now we're in the Premier League. They're not so much of a threat, you know. It's the, it's the big boys. You, you want to win against the big boys. You want to beat the Villa. We haven't managed to do that this season either. Uh, but uh, you, you, the best types of victories against, are always against the most imposing foe, you know, when you have to go to their stadium and it's, it's packed with fans that just hate your team every bit as much as you hate theirs. That kind of a victory is just always the best. And uh, I remember growing up, there was an advert. There was an advert on TV that really kind of just caught the flavor of this type of victory better than perhaps I can explain to you. You might remember it. Um, it starred football legends, and I'm talking about real legends. They, they don't make them like this anymore, do they, Bucky? But, but you know, Eric Cantona, Eric Cantona, the, Ian Wright, Paolo Maldini, you know, giants of the game, one-club men. You don't get many of those either, do you, these days, the one-club man. Um, Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo. Um, also, um, gosh, who else was in there? I think Paul Scholes makes an appearance as well, but there were, there were tons of legends in this advert. It was an advert for, um, for Nike, for Nike football boots. And, um, you know, Eric Cantona, love him or hate him, but he was the reason why we all wore our collars up back in the day when we played football. It's probably too old for you to remember, Bucky, actually. He's... <laughs> but um, these heroes in this advert, in this Nike football advert, you might remember it, they're facing off against a team of demons, a team of demons, and they have to walk into this really imposing stadium. It's like a Roman Colosseum, and as they walk in, the fans are hurling missiles at them. I think there's some raw meat that gets chucked uh, at the feet of the players, and, and it's just this intimidating environment. And, and to begin with in the game, as it kicks off, they take an absolute battering. And I don't just mean metaphorically. They literally are getting kicked to bits by this team full of demons until a pivotal moment arrives. Paolo Maldini slides in, takes the ball from the feet of this demon and passes it upfield to Figo, 
Luis Figo, what, what a player he was for Barcelona and Real Madrid. He made the cross between those two great giants of Spanish football. Figo passes to Clivert, who scored, of course, the winning goal in the Champions League final for Ajax back in the day. Wow, I'm getting back into the memories now, you can see. Um, <laughs> Clivert to Ronaldo. Ronaldo runs on and finally the ball comes to Eric Cantona. He puts his foot on the ball. The collar gets popped. Au revoir. Bam! And the ball goes straight through the guts of the demon in goal. And he's the most imposing demon of all. Goal. Glory. They win the game. Now, before I go any further, it's probably worth me clarifying why on earth I'm talking to you about a football advert from the 90s. Well, it does have some relevance to today's passage. Because the Greek word that we'll be looking at today is actually a Greek word that you all know. Nike, okay? It's the Greek word Nike, which means victory. That's what that word means. And of course, the Nike brand itself, I'm not wanting to advertise for them, but it's kind of working out that way. Uh, Their brand um, takes its name, of course, from the Greek and Roman god, uh, goddess, Athena Nike. She was the goddess of victory. Now, the Nike advert kind of really does relate in some quite prescient ways to today's passage. Because we're going to be looking at hostile opposition. There was a hostile opposition, not simply bent on defeating our footballing heroes, but they wanted to destroy our footballing heroes. It wasn't just good enough to win the game. They wanted to see them smote in the dust. There was a crowd baying for blood, wanting to see the heroes lose. And then, of course, there's the final, ultimate triumph of good over evil. These themes already relate to our passage today. That word Nike or Nike appears no less than four times in these first five verses of chapter 5. Each time that word takes, of course, a slightly different grammatical form, um, but John is wanting to make sure that this theme of victory really makes an impression upon us as we read the passage. Most often in the English translations, it comes over as uh, triumph or overcomes or victory. You might have those words placed interchangeably, but each time you see the word victory or overcome, it's actually that, re- that Greek word nike or nike that's underneath that. So that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at this subject of victory. What is the victory that we as believers have over the world? What does that mean? Whatever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory with which we overcome our faith. What does that mean? What kind of victory do we have? And what is meant by world? Well, to begin with, let's make a few distinctions. This is how we read the Bible as Christians. We have to engage our minds as well as our hearts, don't we, brothers and sisters? You know, when we, whenever we read any text, we have to engage our minds so that we might understand what's being said to us. So let's make a few logical conclusions before we dive into the text. Firstly, this concept of victory. When we think of victory, we have to 
of necessity understand that there is no victory without conflict, is there? The idea of victory comes tied in, hand in hand, with the idea of a foe, with conflict, with struggle. You can't have victory unless there is a struggle. You can't be victorious over nothing. So, we have to understand here what John is saying. When he's talking about victory, he's implying that there is a struggle going on. This is the story of life for every Christian. For every believer, there is a struggle. There is conflict. A Christian, brothers and sisters, is somebody who is at war. We'll get to why that's not true in a moment. Don't be fooled into thinking that your life as a Christian is one of pacifism, of laying down the tools of combat. A passive Christian is a dead Christian. The Christian, according to John, in these first few verses of chapter 5, is to be at war with the world. So what does victory then look like? What does victory over the world look like? Are we to overcome the world like Alexander the Great did? Are we to take nations by force, by military power? Or do we have victory over the world by rising to the top of every single sphere of influence in the world by occupying the greatest positions of influence in economy, in government, in media, in education, and so forth. You see, this kind of approach is often called the, the Seven Mountain Mandate. I don't know if you've heard about the Seven Mountain Mandate before, but this is something whereby Christians believe that the Matthew 28 Commission of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations, is accomplished through Christians rising to prominent positions of influence in the so-called seven mountains of influence in the world, some of which I've just named, education, media, economy. And it's only when we rise to the top um, of these particular kind of cultural centers that then the kingdom of God really takes place. That's when revival happens often called the seven mountain mandate uh, or it has been called by others a theology of dominionism dominionism that Christians are to take dominion in these cultural areas and that's how our warfare is to be done you know some in these days actually go so far as to say that the church itself the church of Jesus Christ globally, that its only real purpose is to raise up leaders who will go into these spheres of influence and actually begin to take their seats and take charge. But is that what John means? Is John suggesting here that our victory over the world means that we become the cream of the crop, that we rise to prominence and we take influence? Well, firstly, brothers and sisters, again, we have to do 
some work to understand what's meant by the world. What does John mean when he says the world? What is the victory that we have over this world? I might get some funny looks for that because, of course, we all know what the world is. You don't know what the world is? You shouldn't be behind a pulpit preaching if you don't know what the world is. (laughs) But though it might be first obvious what the world means, hot cosmos is the Greek noun there. John uses it a lot in his writings. He uses it in his gospel. He uses it in his letters. Though it might be, seem very obvious what he's wanting to, to say here, he actually means no less than ten things by that one word in all of his writings. If we look, for example, in John 3.16, For God so loved, again we've got ton cosmon, the world. The world in that passage is what? Well, it's, it's humanity. It's the human race. And it's God's love for the human race through sending Jesus Christ. So that's what he means by the world there. The meaning of this word here is somewhat different. Are we supposed to believe somehow that this same world, humanity, that Jesus died for, that God so loves, is now what we're having to fight against? That would seem strange, wouldn't it? We've got a little crew outside. I'm just going to try and get them to quiet down a little bit. We've got some, uh, some people wanting to kind of listen in on the service today, which is all good, which is all good. But uh, just going to try and get them to quiet down a little bit. <laughs> so what do we mean by the world? What is Ton Cosmon? We've got to be careful not to just jump to conclusions when we're reading the Bible. Because we see that words are not always just derived from what they mean, the, the etymological meaning of a word. A word can, be, it can change its meaning dependent on the context, the context in the passage. Paul talks himself in his writings about this struggle. He talks about Christian struggle in Ephesians 6. He says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So what Paul's saying is this. He's saying there is warfare. The Christian life isn't just one of passivity. There is a struggle. There is a conflict. But this conflict doesn't take place in a physical combat situation. It takes place on a spiritual level. And I think we have to understand that's what John is meaning here too. He's talking about some kind of a spiritual conflict. And yet I feel that John's world, what he calls the world here, is perhaps even broader than what Paul means in Ephesians 6. How do we know then what's meant by the world? What kind of foe do we face? What kind of opposition is John saying we have victory over? Well, I think we have to look back in verse 3. In verse 3 and 4, we find this. We keep his commandments, that is God's commandments, for his commandments are not 
burdensome. And then immediately, John goes on to say, for whatever has been born of God overcomes the world. You may have for whoever is born of God. That's a good translation too. But actually, um, the, uh, the case there in the Greek is, is actually in the neuter case, which would suggest what's being spoken about here really is anything which is born of God. Whatever God makes born again overcomes the world. So what's being said here is that the world is whatever has not been born of God. The world includes sinful humanity. The world includes the powers of darkness. They also have not been caused to be born again. And these dark powers, of course, as we know, according to Paul, influence the world. They influence sinful humanity. It's important that we remember that as Christians, that the world we inhabit um, is inhabited by also beings that we cannot see. And those beings are controlled by certain powers uh, that are organized, that are malevolent, that are purposed against the church of Jesus Christ and have aims and objectives to try and derail the plan of God. And when we understand that as Christians, we are positioned in a better place to be able to have this conflict that John is talking about. We have to be aware and clued up, not obsessed with, but clued up about the fact that there is an evil, malevolent force in this world that wants to derail the plan of God for your life. So what's meant by world is, is sinful humanity. It's the powers of darkness that inhabit the world. And even more close to home, it's your own sinful flesh. It's your own sinful flesh. Now, often as Christians, we can think that sin is just simply something that occasionally we trip up into doing. You know, sin exists out here, uh, and sometimes I trip into sin. And, and that is true. Sin is something that you do. It is something that you do. But equally, the Bible talks about sin as being something that you are. When the fall happened... Everybody in Adam was born in sin. Everything that comes from Adam as the federal head is infected by sin, naturally speaking. So Paul talks about this in Romans 6 and 7. He talks about a body of sin. Literally, our physical members, our flesh, has fleshly desires. And so we must wrestle not only against the influence of sinful humanity, against the influence of the powers of darkness. But also, there's an internal struggle that takes place with ourselves. How many of you know this? How many of you can stand and put your hand up when Paul talks about the futility of trying to live righteously through your own will in Romans 7? You know, I find another law present within me at work in my members this is what we wrestle with as well. This is the battle that John's talking about. It comes really close to home. It's in your members. We can still, as Christians, choose to walk by the flesh, can't we? Our flesh still presents us with opportunity every day to sin. It presents us with opportunities to turn down a different path if we would but ignore the Word of God. This battle comes very close to home. 
Now, John says that our battle and our victory is over the things in this world that in particular would keep us from obeying God, from obeying his word, his commands about how we should live and about what we should believe, and specifically that they would keep us from obeying his commandments in terms of loving him first, the love that comes from us up to God, and then secondarily, uh, these are powers in the world that would prevent us from loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because, of course, these are the themes that we've been talking about for, for a third of a year now, aren't they? Loving God, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the one who's born again will have victory. That's what's the encouraging part about this passage. It doesn't say may have. Uh, they will have victory by means of their ability to obey God in the midst of violent opposition. Our military, uh, sorry, our victory is not military. <laughs> it's not physical. It's not a, a power grab. You know, we're not... Um, it's not about becoming more powerful as individuals or getting more influence or money. It's a, it's a spiritual victory. It's a spiritual victory of obedience. So let's talk about this foe. How do we figure out the strategy of the enemy? Isn't that an important thing to do? I think it's important to know the playbook of the enemy to a certain degree. I think it's important we don't get over-obsessed with what the devil's doing, but equally, I think it's important to know what his tactics look like so that we can try and avoid them and counteract them um, during the day. First off, we know that our enemy is not neutral. That's important to say because I think that the enemy wants us to think that the world is neutral. Our foe, the world over which we have victory, is not neutral towards God. Romans 1, 17 says, doesn't it? It says, for the, um, the unrighteous, sorry, for the, the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And it says that the men in the world, mankind, is suppressing the truth because of unrighteousness. That there is a truth that has been revealed about God to all of humanity but that that truth is being suppressed. Paul goes on to say some quite offensive and disparaging things about human nature later in that same passage. But what we can derive from it for sure is that the world is not neutral towards God. The power that is in the world, the powers of darkness, are not neutral towards God, and therefore they are not neutral towards you. There is an aim, there is an objective for the powers at work in the world, and that is to cause you to turn aside from obeying God. Now, the world might say, or the spirit that's in the world might say, well, that's preposterous. You've just got a victim mentality, you Christians. You always think you're being persecuted, don't you? You're always the victim, perennial victims. You always think you're being bullied and picked on. You're not. You get the same treatment as everyone else. And in a sense, that's, that's true in a sense, is the, world, the world's okay with you worshipping God. The world's alright with you worshipping a God of your own choosing in private. They're okay with that. The devil's okay with you worshipping God 
So long as it's not the God who exists, as long as it's not the God of the Bible, the world's okay with you worshipping him. You know, even in our nation, which for so long has basked in the benefits of obedience to God's law, now in some places, even to read the scriptures aloud in public can land you in prison. And the world says, look, we're okay with you obeying God so long as your God never disagrees with us. And therein lies the problem. So what is the strategy then of this foe? What kind of things do we need to look out for? What things will we have victory over as born-again believers? Well, number one, I I think this is one of the, the key plays of the enemy. The world wants you to be silent. The world wants silence from Christians. The world says, by all means, go to church. Do what you'd like to do in private. But please, don't talk about it. Don't push your beliefs on others. I've always thought that's an interesting thing to say. Don't push your beliefs on me. Well, what is that? Well, that's a belief being pushed on me. That's a belief that I shouldn't push my beliefs being pushed on me. (laughs) The world doesn't mind being self-contradictory. We're seeing this now in culture. We're seeing the breakdown of logic and reason in favor of totalitarianism, in favor of one thought, one worldview having hegemony over every other. Brothers and sisters, it's been said before by people cleverer than me, if, if no one knows you're a Christian, and I mean your family, your friends, your colleagues, you probably aren't one. Our silence in terms of sharing Jesus, in terms of telling other people about Christ, belies our true relationship with God. And the world wants you to be silent. The world recognizes the power of the gospel. If we can't tell the truth about God, brothers and sisters, we are not loving God. And this is the issue. And I think John is saying, listen, the true believers, those who have been born again, that's what a true Christian is, isn't it? It's not somebody who just goes to church. It's not somebody who tries to live a better life. A Christian is somebody who's been supernaturally born again. They've been altered. They are completely different than they were before. There is a new life present within them. And what the Bible says is that that individual, that person there who has been born again, will not be silent about the gospel. They will not shut up about God. They will tell others about him. They will preach the gospel, brothers and sisters. A born-again believer will not be a silent believer because they will overcome the world. Number two, this is another strategy of the foe. Compromise. Compromise. 
And I think it's probably the most insidious tactic of the enemy. What it says is basically this. Look, if you'll just compromise on this one thing, whatever that might be, you just compromise here and just say that, you know, the Word of God, it doesn't have authority. It's a, it's a good source for wisdom and, and knowledge, but don't say that it's actually true. Just say that it's, it's of importance to you. Just say that it's a personal belief of yours. If you'll just compromise on the ultimate authority of God's Word and say that it's not true for everyone, it's just true for me, then the world says we can be friends. We could be friend. We could be such good mates. You know, I could show you off to all my other friends. You could be friends with all people from different backgrounds and different lifestyle practices. If you just stop saying that the Bible is the Word of God, if you just say that it's kind of true to you, right? Make everything more relative. And we can be friends. Now, the promise of friendship with the world, brothers and sisters, that promise of friendship with the world has been the shipwreck for so many Christians. It's been the siren call that's led them to have the boat of their faith dashed on the rocks. Of course, a true believer, a born-again believer, as John's saying, is never beguiled by that call of friendship with the world. Born-again believers have no interest in friendship with the world. But there were some, of course, brothers and sisters, there were false believers just as there are true believers. Jesus himself said this. He said the true believers will worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, what's the inference? The inference is that there are false believers. There are people who say that they are Christians in this world right now today who are not indeed Christians. There are people standing behind pulpits and lecterns all over the world on this holy day of the Lord today saying that they are Christians. And brothers and sisters, they are not Christians. They can quote scripture. They can preach, some of them. In fact, many a false teacher is a better orator than I ever will be. But brothers and sisters, you can tell their falsehood because they want to make friends with the world. They will compromise. They'll make bargains with the world just so they can get a little bit of favor here or there, so they can be friends, so they can appear in their magazines, so they can get a few more Twitter followers here and there, so they can get a blue tick by their name. You can see it. As we know, lecterns, titles, dog collars, cassocks don't save anyone. They don't save anyone bargain that I'll spend eternity with Jesus simply because I stand behind this. I've got no surety that I will live for eternity with God simply because I have a job that entails preaching the Bible. The only certainty that I have of ultimately going to heaven is the same certainty that every sinner has, and that is that they trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation in Him alone. If we compromise, brothers and sisters, on God's word, then we actually don't love God. We hate him. 
We hate him and we love the world. The final strategy is this. This is the world's final strategy, which I think is rife right now, and it's division. Division. The world wants to spread division in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. Isn't that the truth? C.S. Lewis has this to say about division. Quote, The devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites, and he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is the worst. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of one error to gradually draw you into the opposite one. End quote. I don't know about you, but that's what I've been seeing for the last 12 months. I don't want to go into the particular controversies that I'm talking about here, but I'm sure you can guess. It seems that every month there are two new viewpoints that are put before you and you are drawn to one or the other. And the other viewpoint is not just seen as wrong, but it's seen as evil. And whoever believes that must be some kind of subhuman. You know this is happening. This is dangerous, brothers and sisters. This is a ploy of the devil. The world is full of division, but Jesus Christ's church should be the one place where we enjoy unity together. This is not to say that we never have an occasion of disagreement, of course. We see that in the Bible. We see Paul withstanding Peter to his face in Antioch for withdrawing from the Gentiles. We know that disagreement happens in the body of Christ and disagreement is not something that is sinful if it's around the right things. However, there should not be sectarianism in the body of Christ. You know, we should not have some saying, well, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter and you know how this works. You just change the names into, well, I'm of this particular political view and they're of that political view and we don't talk because they vote this way and they vote that way and we don't talk to them because they believe this and we believe this about this situation that's going on in the world. Brothers and sisters, this is a ploy of the devil. The question is, can we love our brother and sister in Christ whichever way they may have voted? Can we do that? Can we love our brother and sister in Christ, whatever color their skin might be? This is the test. And the world is trying to get you to second guess yourself on those things, isn't it? Isn't it? So how is our victory finally assured? By the new birth. By God making you born again. That's how the victory over the world and over all these ploys is ensured. It's not by your education. Did you catch that? It's not by any natural means that you'll overcome the world. It's by supernatural means. It's by the supernatural power of God working in your heart to make you born again, to make you ultimately other than everything that's in the world. It's not by your resources or means. It's by faith that you overcome the world. This is how the victory is made manifest to us, through faith. Now faith, the particular type of faith we're talking about here, faith follows the new birth, doesn't it? Faith is a fruit 
of being born again. In fact, the Bible says it's quite impossible for you to have faith in God of your own means. 1 Corinthians 2 says that the natural man receiveth not the things of God. They are foolishness to him. Foolishness. It's impossible without the supernatural hand of God to believe in God. I want you to understand that. You know this to be true in your testimony, don't you? Your testimony is one of grace. It's one whereby God came and grabbed you by the scruff of the neck out of whatever you were living in and pulled you into his family and loved you. He loved you first. Faith is a fruit of the new birth. Faith is not a work. You know, in fact, um, some have taken this verse here to mean uh, that it is our faith, the principle of faith that we have that overcomes the world. As if, you know, well, I'm overcoming the world by the working of my faith. You know, I'm believing for this and I'm, I'm saying no to that and my declarations about who I am and what I'll be, they're overcoming the world and, and somehow that it's my faith, you know, that's overcoming the world. Well, John makes clear in the very next verse, in verse 5, that it isn't the bare principle of faith that gives victory, but it's rather the object of faith that gives the victory. It's the object of your faith that is what overcomes the world. It's not you that overcomes the world. It's Jesus Christ. And it's only through faith in him that you overcome too. It's his victory. You know, Sean Douglas O'Donnell said this. He said, Christians don't fight for victory. They fight from victory. We fight this battle against the flesh, against sinful humanity, against the devil. We fight it from victory, from Jesus Christ. Knowing already overcome the world. He is our victor. And when we stand in his victory, that's when we see our victory play out in front of us. Ocumenus, who was a, a, an early church father, he said this. He said, it's not faith in the abstract that overcomes the world. It must be faith in Jesus Christ. It must be faith in Jesus Christ. Only one man has ever enjoyed total victory. The type that we see in that Nike advert back that I mentioned at the beginning of the preach. Only one man has ever enjoyed total victory over his enemies. Only one man has truly stepped into the arena of the devil and sin and death and walked out having led them all a merry dance. Only one man. It's only when our faith rests in this one man, in Jesus Christ, that we will walk in that victory too. It's his victory we walk in. It's his walk which was pleasing to the Father that we now step into and we walk because he has done it first. The, war, the world, of course, hates to see us walking like Jesus. It hates to see us walking in love, walking in truth. But that's exactly what we were born again to do. I want to ask you this morning, this afternoon rather, do you know 
this one man who overcame the world. Is that where your faith rests? Do you know Jesus? Do you know that you're born again? We talked about it a little bit today, but do you know that you're born again? How would you know you're born again? Well, Sam Storms, who's a theologian, put it like this. The question is asked, how may I know that regeneration, that the new birth has occurred? How can I know if I've been born again? And the answer comes straight from 1 John. Number one, that person will not make a practice of sin. Have you stopped making a practice of sin in your life? Number two, that person who has been born again will make a practice of righteousness. Has righteousness become a practice of yours? Have you begun to hate your former ways, to hate sin and run from it and try and walk in a way that pleases Jesus? That would suggest you have been born again. Number three, that person loves their brothers and sisters in Christ. Is there a special love that you have for other Christians in your church family? Do you pray for them? Do you think of them? Is that something that is completely alien to you? Then perhaps you need to question whether you've been truly born again. I know this is strong stuff, but this is what John has us do, is to test our salvation. Number four, that person will believe in Christ. They won't rest their faith on their own abilities. They won't rest their faith on their charisma or their education or their influence or their power, but they rest it in Jesus Christ and Him alone. They are at rest. They've rested from their works. Are you at rest from your works? Have you stopped trying to please God and now live from His pleasure in Jesus? That's the person who will overcome the world. That's the person who will walk in victory. That person who was ceased from striving in themselves and now operates from Jesus' finished work and does battle from his position of victory and hence overcomes all the powers of the world, all the powers of sin, all the powers of darkness, all the power of sinful flesh and is able, therefore, to be obedient to God. Yes, in an imperfect way. Yes, we sometimes still stumble, but there is a trajectory in our life towards holiness that we can see, that we can testify to. That's how we know we're born again. Brothers, sisters, are you born again today? If you are not, if you know in your heart that some of the things I've just mentioned are not true of you, perhaps you're resting your trust in a number of different things and Jesus is just one among many options Don't walk away from today's session without turning your heart to Jesus, giving your heart fully to him, not hedging your bets, but placing your trust in him and him alone for your salvation. Let's pray. Rob, if you could come up and uh, Dave as well. Lord, we thank you that there is victory in this life and it's a victory that's perfect, that has been purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, and is now being applied to us through the new birth. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. And God, firstly, my prayer is for those who don't yet know you, whether you're watching this stream now or whether you come to watch it in the coming days. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of your heart, that you would come to Jesus Christ and lay everything at his feet and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me that I've been a rebel and a hater of you. That I have henceforth, that I'm sorry, that I have previously wanted to rail against you with everything in me. And now I come bring all that I am before you. I lay down my works and I trust in your works. I trust in your death and your, resurrec- your resurrection. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. I pray that those who are watching this today who don't yet know Jesus would approach him in that manner. Secondly, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that again there would be a a reassurance and a confidence that whatever battle you're facing today, you will have victory. You will have the victory. You will overcome. Whatever addiction or sin that easily besets you, whatever that might be, know this, you will have the victory. Say that. I will have victory over the world. I pray that as a fellowship, we would be a a group of people that enjoys a radical obedience to God. Radical obedience. That we'd submit to follow you, Lord Jesus, in all your ways. Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit, strengthen us today. Strengthen us today. Help us to walk this week in victory, in obedience to all of your commands. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.